The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline Church. I uh, last week was at Frontline Yukon. So Frontline is one church with five congregations all around the, all around the city, and uh, got to spend the week with the Yukon ministry team and be with them on a Sunday morning. It was really fun, and uh, they they charged me to come back to you guys with with blessings and to say they love you and and um, to just share that. I told the other services, it was like Frontline, Frontline Yukon was planted in 2020, which makes them the youngest of all the Frontline congregations. And so it's a little bit like hanging out with the youngest child of the family. It's like, gets away with stuff the other congregations don't. Gets lots of attention, you know. Um, and it was really fun. But the day is coming that we'll probably plant more Frontlines, and uh, God willing, and then they will just be relegated to middle child status, and we'll forget they exist. Um, it's not, I'm joking, it's not true. God loves all the middle children. And uh, <laughs> so that has nothing to do with anything. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. And we're going to jump into the, this passage, Isaiah 11. We're in this series, uh, The Promised King, talking about the prophecies of Isaiah. 
written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, but gives us insight and understanding into the significance of the birth, birth of Jesus. And Isaiah 11 is especially helpful here during Advent. And so let's pray with one another for one another. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and how it holds up for us just the, the fundamental reality of your faithfulness. And so I pray for each and every one of us in our, in our hearts and for our eyes and our ears to, to hear, to see, um, to take hold of the profound, steadfast reality of who you are. Help me um, just hold up the truth and the beauty of the gospel before my, my own heart and the heart of my friends and uh, that we all together would be able to see just the, the wonder of who you are, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, God's people said. Amen. Anytime we come to this Sunday of Advent, which is the Sunday that we uh, light the peace candle, and we, we meditate on and think through what Christmas peace means. Uh, a similar story, or the same story, always, always comes to mind and heart with me. And it's a story of a guy named Henry Longfellow, just renowned poet and author. And on Christmas morning, 1863, he woke up with uh, what's probably fair to describe as the weight of the world's on his the weight of the world on his shoulders. He was just two years removed from his beloved wife, Fanny, they like adored each other. And she just died in this tragic, freakish house fire. That happened in 1861. And Longfellow desperately tried to save her in that fire, to put out the fire, and himself then bore scars on his hands and on his face of, of, of that tragedy. And in a real way, like every time he looked at his hands, every time he wrote pick something up, every time he looked at his own face in the mirror, like the outward representation was the, the inward reality of what he carried. He bore scars of a tragedy. In fact, people that knew him well said that he didn't grow that, that beard until after that event to help cover the scars on his face. And so in, in a way that like the holidays do in all of our life, um, in the, in the midst of the celebration, they tend to highlight things that ought not be. And when we grieve, we grieve in a more intense way. When we sense loss, that is like brought in a renewed way. And surely that Christmas morning, um, as Longfellow woke up, he, he in a, a fresh way felt the pain of Fanny not being there with him for the second Christmas in a row. But on top of that, if you just think of American history and you hear that year, 1863, um, that is likely the worst year in our nation's history because that's like the apex, the summit of the Civil War. The war is raging north and south. Our very nation is being torn apart and, and fighting this, this violent and tragic and deadly war. And that had like national implications, but like so many for Longfellow that like personally impacted his life because his oldest son, Charlie, as soon as he could, signed up to fight with the Union Army, but not a year later had, had received a wound 
wound in his back that should have killed him. He survived, but it sent him home. And this oldest boy of Longfellow then was in this constant perpetual pain. He's laying in bed in the home of Longfellow that Christmas morning, 1863. And so Henry Longfellow not only has the burden of grief that his wife is not with him that Christmas day, he also has the burden that is, is indescribable in many ways of a parent who longs to help his child who's in pain. And he's trying to nurse his son back to health, and his son is, is bedridden. And so he's carrying the grief of loss. He's carrying the pain of a child who's wounded, And he's carrying the heartbreak of a nation that he deeply cares for that's warring against itself. And so with all that in his heart, with all that weight on his shoulders, he does what he does best. He takes a seat and he writes a poem. It's it's maybe his best known work known as Christmas Bells. Even though I'm self-conscious because I feel like like a slam poet, I will read it for you. So this is my Christmas gift to you. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So as Longfellow writes this this poem, he's painting like a a really powerful picture of just imagine these bell towers all across the world, all across the nation on Christmas morning. They're all ringing out like a wave rushing in of, of the song, ringing the celebration that there's peace on earth, goodwill towards men because it's Jesus Christ's birthday. It's a song of peace. Yet in a, a tragic way, he then describes that ringing out, being drowned out by the cannon fire of the civil war. See, the message of Christmas that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men, whether you're here this morning and you're, you're not sure what you believe, you're just exploring Christianity, or, or you've been following Jesus for a long time, we all sense in some way, shape, or form, or believe, or long for this time of year, this celebration, to bring about a peace. And regardless of who we are and what we believe, we all long for peace. And what Christians believe and Scripture claims is that there is a true, profound peace that's offered in Christmas. The Christmas story begins in Luke with the sky opening up and an army of angels singing and a a, a divine heavenly message coming that a child is born who will bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And yet, in so many ways, that can feel 
removed from our reality. At Christmas time, we're going to exchange gifts and we, we, we go to dinner and we send pictures and messages to friends and we do all these things, these traditions, significant or sentimental, and I love them all. And, and in, in some way, we do them in expectation that we're going to experience the joys and peace that Christmas has to offer. But each and every one of us in some way, shape, or form can relate to where Longfellow is in this poem because what happens is there's a, a cannon fire of reality that drowns out the longing for peace that we have. There's somebody there at the table that was there years before that isn't there the, this year. And the, the cannon fire of grief rings in our hearts and drowns out peace cannon fire of strained relationships or a struggle with addiction, the booming of anxiety about our personal finances, the explosion of the struggle that's just the expectation of what we long for versus the reality of the present, the cannon fire of, of pain or depression and anxiety, fear and loss. The sound of that booming can drown out the song of Christmas peace. There's this author and uh, critic of Christianity named Bart Ehrman, and he had a, a, an event at a college campus years ago. And at the end of the event, he did a Q&A, and a student stood up and asked, hey, what would it actually take for you to believe in the claims of Christianity? And his answer like, immediately was, well, I'd believe if Jesus fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. So what does peace mean in light of the claims of Christmas? Is Ehrman right? Like that Christmas peace is a broken promise that God left unfulfilled? That it's just like a, a sweet sentimentality that doesn't last and it's, it's div divorced from our reality? Or is there like a peace that's more profound than what we think is Pastor Steve led us in prayer today already to engage and look to. See, there's tons of stuff that we can think about when we think about Christmas. Trees and gifts and lights and, and great things and, and, and Advent meditations like joy and hope and love and peace. But there's probably a primary thing that needs to strike our hearts when we think about Christmas, and that's the reality of promise. If Christmas is about one thing, it's about promise. Because from the beginning, God promised that Christmas would be a reality. And Christmas is the reality that God does keep his promises. He had to because he said he would. Christmas is about the faithfulness of God. And what Isaiah 11 does for us is it's a key to help us prepare our hearts to understand that the deep reality, the formidable peace that is ours in Christmas, in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look at this passage in, in two points, two movements. And the first thing we need to see is the promise kept. Isaiah 1 through 5 talks about the promise kept that we celebrate in Christmas. And to, to really get that, we need to kind of zoom out and look at the context of what's happening in God's chosen people, Israel, at the moment of Isaiah the prophet's ministry. Because Isaiah prophesied to God's people in a really bleak, dark time where things were were rough, to put it lightly. See, although God had always been faithful to his people, again and again, God's people 
were unfaithful to God. And that is especially true in this moment in their history. And by the time the prophet Isaiah arrived on the scene, the people of God had fully rejected, Israel had rejected their the promises of God. They no longer put their trust in God and they looked to other places and other people for hope and for safety and for security. <laughs> in a sad and ironic way, specifically at this moment in their history, they had put all of their hope and their security in, in the king of and the nation of Assyria. And if you know anything about ancient history, it's like they're a caricature of like an evil empire. I mean, they're off the charts as far as violence and, and, and darkness. And, and so the people of God say, hey, Doug, we're not going to believe in you, God, to keep your promises. We're not going to put our trust in you. We're not going to build our hope upon you. We're going to go to the king of Syria, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, and lo and behold, things go poorly because this wicked king, a part of this wicked empire, betrays God's people, breaks his promise, and as a result, brings into their current reality all kinds of destruction, unleashes all kinds of brokenness, and brings about a darkness in their life. See, Isaiah 1 through 10, Isaiah's painting a prophetic picture of God's people, and he, he uses this prophetic picture of a force, and he says, hey, I, I, once you were meant to be God's people, like a forest brimming with life. If you've ever walked through a forest, you can look at this picture and, and, and just remember what that experience is like. There's life all around, above you, under you, all around you. There's an invitation as you walk through that forest to, to raise your eyes and look up and behold beauty and life and wonder. And that's who God's people were called to be. But since they failed to believe his promises and they've put their hope and trust elsewhere, the destruction that was brought about is now not a forest brimming with life, but it's a the picture that Isaiah paints is a, is a tree that's felled. It's a forest that's been chopped down. There's, there's desolation and destruction all around. And where there was once trees full of life, they've now been chopped down. And not just chopped down, but burnt stumps. And so you can just smell and see the evidence of destruction as Isaiah paints this picture. That's the present reality in this moment of God's people because of their unfaithfulness. But this is the context then that the promise of Isaiah 11 comes. It's in this bleak, dark picture that God makes another promise to his people. He says, hey, there's coming a day in the future when in the midst of this destruction and darkness, you're going to look at one of those burnt out stumps and it's going to look hopeless. But life is going to spring forth into your desolation, into your wreckage, into your darkness. I'm going to bring about life. There's a rescuer and a ruler and he's going to enter into your darkness to save you. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 tells us that first, this rescuer, he'll be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's dad. And so this promise is saying, hey, there's going to be a king that's going to come. And he's going to rescue you. Isaiah says that he will be full of the Spirit. Look at verse 2 again. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
Isaiah goes on to prophesy in verse 3 and 5 that this ruler, this rescuer, this savior is going to be marked by righteousness. That even the best kings of Israel, King David, ultimately failed in epic ways and and didn't trust the, the, the promises of God, failed to obey God. But this ruler, verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then interestingly, as as Carol read ahead in verse 10, if we look to the end of this passage, Isaiah begins by saying he's going to be the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, but comes back at the end and says that he will be, in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all peoples. Of him shall nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So that's interesting, right? That this promised ruler and and rescuer and king, this savior, he will both be something new and something foundational, right? He will be base source foundation and branch. Maybe in botanical language we can understand that by saying that he will both be the beginning and the end. How can he both be the son of Jesse but also be the source of Jesse himself? This doesn't sound like any expected savior or ruler. What's going on here? And what's going on here is that Christmas is being promised. What Isaiah is prophesying, this promise of God, is is kept through the birth of Jesus. That Jesus was born of the lineage of Jesse, a son of David. That Matthew 3.16 talks about when Jesus was baptized, the very spirit of God rested upon him at his baptism. That that Jesus is both God and man. That he left the glory of heaven and came down to earth, but didn't lay down his divinity, but fully took on our humanity, being both fully God and man. He is both the beginning and in something new. He is the shoot and the root. He's the fulfillment of God's promise here in Isaiah 11. God kept this promise in Jesus, but it's not just Isaiah 11. This needs to Settle in our hearts today that Jesus is God's kept promise for every promise God has made. All of God's promises are kept in Jesus. Paul says this when he writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, For all the promises of God... For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for the glory of God. So every promise God has ever made, Paul saying the resounding yes, we see that promise kept when we look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's why when we pray, Paul says, and we say amen, which means yes, it's true, or let it be so, that's worship as we pray in the authority of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus in his name. It's, 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 it's standing on the root of the faithfulness of God. And we're saying, yeah, God, you keep your promises because we have seen Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So when you just look at all of the, the promises of God from the very beginning, we were studying Genesis together. And when, when things went wrong for the first time, the darkest day of history, when our original mom and dad, Adam and Eve, they reject God and his promises. And they, they say, God, you're holding out on us. And you gave us an, 
a garden full of yeses and one no, but we choose to rebel against your reign. God, in grace, he shows up. And what does he do? He makes a promise in the midst of that dark day. And he says, hey, this, this evil that tempted you and deceived you, that led you astray, and, and God makes a promise to Satan himself and says, hey, one day there's a baby that's going to be born from the line of Eve, And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. In other words, there's a baby that's going to be born that's that's going to stomp you out. And it's going to hurt him, but it's going to devastate you. 2,000 years before the first Christmas, God spoke to a man named Abram and said, Hey, you're, even though you're old and childless, I'm going to give you a promise. And you're going to have a descendant. And your descendant's going to bless the whole world. It's a promise from God. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's trying to do some things for God, and, and God says, no, David, I'm going to do some things for you. I'm going to make you a promise that you're going to have a, a descendant. You're going to have a, a, a boy, and he's going to come from your line, and he's going to rule forever. There's going to be no end to his kingdom. And all through the Old Testament, you have passages that are promises from God. In great detail, Isaiah 7 says there's going to be a a Savior that comes and he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9 says that this rescuer is going to come and he's going to do ministry in the area of Galilee. In Isaiah 42, we're told that even though he's going to be the Savior of the world, he's going to be marked by humility. Isaiah 53 tells us that that he's going to be a suffering servant, tells us the manner of his death, tells us that the Messiah will be buried in a rich man's grave. Micah 5 tells us the very place of his birth. Daniel 9 tells us about the time that he will be born. Zechariah 9 tells us about a triumphal entry he's going to walk out before his crucifixion. Zechariah 11 tells us in detail that before his death, he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Psalm 22 prophesies that at his death he will thirst, that his hands and his feet will be pierced, and that that people will cast lots for his clothes. And all through the Psalms, like Psalm 24, there's a prophecy about his victory over death. The 24th Psalm describes a powerful entry into the very courts of heaven where the resurrected Lord takes his seat as ruler of the universe. We could keep on going, but this is, this is the, the foundational truth that Christmas holds up for us. God keeps his promises because every promise he made is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's a big truth, but it also like is really personal for each and every one of us in this moment. Because it means that regardless of what we brought in today, that we can trust everything that God says. When God says that we, we don't save ourselves through our own righteousness, but that we're saved through the work of Jesus, we can believe him. When God says that he's faithful to complete the work that he started in us, that the Holy Spirit is sent to, to indwell us, work in us and through us to make us more like Jesus, we can believe him, that we're not abandoned, but God's at work in our life if we're in him. When God promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us, that we can believe his promise. When he says that he's going to bring an end to Satan and sin and death, 
we can believe him. And so as I'm meditating on this passage this week, I'm asking myself questions and I'm inviting you in this moment to ask yourself questions like, hey, where in my life am I forgetting or just choosing not to believe and doubting God's promises? And as the Holy Spirit brings those things to mind, I'm praying, hey, God, help me in my unbelief. Forgive me for forgetting your faithfulness. You're God who keeps his word and, and help me not forget what that means for my life in this very moment. Christmas means a lot of things, but fundamentally, the biggest thing it means is that God keeps his promise. And that leads us to the final thing that we need to see. Two, the promise that's coming. Let's read these verses again, six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child should lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is prophesying here is he's, he's painting a prophetic picture of a world filled with like unimaginable peace. When we hear this passage, it's like completely foreign to us. We've never watched like a nature documentary and seen anything like this ever, right? This is not how the world works. Cows and bears don't graze together, right? Leopards don't make friends with goats. This doesn't play out like this. And that resounds in a real personal way. We're like, that kind of peace isn't in, in creation. That kind of peace certainly isn't in my life. What are we to do with this? But that's why Advent is so helpful to us. See, Advent means arrival, and it's this historical season where we're invited as followers of Jesus to do two things, that we look back in faith at the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward in hope to the second coming of Jesus. And what that does, I use like kind of a, a, a instrumental illustration, like the old hymn, Come Thou Fountain, that says, tune our hearts to sing your praise. If you're like me, you're pretty good at being rooted in the first coming of Jesus this time of year, but then my worship tends to to ring flat because I'm not pulled into the second advent of longing. I'm not in tune to, to sing praise like I ought because I'm, I'm not filled with hope looking forward as I should be to the second advent of Jesus. And that's why Isaiah 11 is so helpful. It's inviting us to look back in faith and look forward in hope, living in what author Fleming Rutledge calls the in-between Fleming Rutledge describes this in between like this in her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. See, the peace that we celebrate at Christmas is a profound, multifaceted peace. First and foremost, it means we have peace with God. Like when we 
rebel against God and we all walk out and live out sin and that's what we choose and that's our nature. The good news of Christmas that we celebrate is is the profound reality that when we were warring against God, the very son of God pursued us, came after us. He arrived on the scene to give us peace what we couldn't do on our own. And because of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that when we believe in him, we have peace with God. And that peace doesn't just stop with peace with God, but that actually means that we get to have peace with one another in the church. It's the the reality that we experience week in and week out in gospel community together, that we have not just friends, but family that we live in profound peace with, not because we have affinity and not because we have shared interests, but because we're made family by God himself. But that's not the only peace that we celebrate at Christmas, that there is a peace coming that we long for that Isaiah holds up in these verses, and it's a full and forever peace. It's like one of the most profound poetic pictures of peace in all scripture. It's like a return to Eden, but like almost better See, according to Isaiah 11, the son of Jesse, this rescuer, he's, he's going to deal with sin and brokenness in this world to the extent that all corruption and all danger is going to be put away. Like the, the verses that I always come back to here are verses 8 and 9. The nursing, child shall, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think of my own childhood when we spent a few years living in Colorado Springs, and when I was like three, four, five years old, we lived right by the Garden of the Gods, and I would go outside and play in our cul-de-sac or in our yard, and I don't know if my recollection lines up with reality because it's been like almost 40 years But the way I remember it, it was like every time I went outside, I had to call for my dad, and my dad would come running out of the garage with a hoe to chop off the head of a rattlesnake. And it happened at least like a handful of times. My memory is that it was like almost a daily event, right? I'm like, why didn't we move, right? Why are you letting me play there, right? What comes to mind now as I'm a father myself is like what must have happened in the heart of my dad when he heard that cry and he knew that I was six feet away from a rattlesnake at the age of four. Like that feeling that every parent experiences when you know your child's in danger and that electricity shoots up your spine and you find your heart in your throat and you move into action because there is nothing that you won't put uh, there, there's nothing that you you won't put yourself between that and the life of your child there's no danger that you're not willing to face no action that you're not willing to take no risk to yourself that you're not willing to put yourself in because you will do anything to protect your child from the real clear present danger of them being hurt or wounded or dying and we all know what that feeling is to some degree as a parent and so Isaiah is painting this picture to say, hey, I want you to imagine, parent, you're chilling on a blanket, but blankets, sipping some coffee, and your, your baby's rattling with this, the tail of a rattlesnake, and you're just enjoying that play out. 
And you're not just enjoying that play out because you're a, a bad parent. You're actually enjoying that play out because there's an unimaginable peace that's a reality. That, that feeling of danger and hurt has been laid waste to because the king has come back again. And you're like, that seems unimaginable, right? And that's Isaiah's point. He's like, yeah, there is peace unimaginable on its way when this promised king comes and he comes again. And that's the beauty of Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, it holds up Advent longing for us in a beautiful way that verses 1 through 5 help us take hold of the first arrival of Jesus in faith and verses 6 through 10 help us long to take hold of the second coming, the second advent of Jesus, that his first arrival happened 2,000 years ago and we pray for a second arrival to come, that his first arrival, Jesus came in humility and lowly and upon his second arrival, he's going to come in power and unveiled glory, that uh, his first arrival, he came to, to lay his life down and to die and suffer for our sins. But on his second arrival, he's going to come to end all suffering and put death itself in the grave. For those in Christ, this promise, it gets the final word in our heart. This promise got the final word in Longfellow's heart. Because where we ended our reading earlier is not where the poem ended. That hope rose up in him, and he went on to write this. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Wait, here's the final word, the final stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So even carrying that grief of his wife and his boy in pain and the world raging around, raging around him, what Longfellow remembered in his heart, the ultimate reality, and what we're invited to remember in our hearts this Christmas season is what Paul wrote to the early church when he was reflecting on this very passage, Isaiah 11. Paul wrote in Romans 15, 13, this benediction, this charge. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Overflow in hope so that as we look back in faith to the arrival of Jesus and we look forward in hope of the coming of Jesus again, that what wells up in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit is a, a rooted in reality anticipation that the God who has always kept his promises in Jesus will keep his promises fully in Jesus and he will come again and bring what? Unimaginable peace. And in that in anticipation for us, friends, is like formidable joy. Like one of the things that's most fun about Christmas for a parent is the child's anticipation for Christmas morning. Christmas isn't a surprise party, right? You, you feel it coming. There's deep anticipation and joy that builds up. That's not just the practice of a child. That is the practice of every Christian, that every day, every Christmas, every turning of the page of the calendar, anticipation builds in us as we're longing for Christ to come again. And we live in that reality. 
that our citizenship is not here, but it's the kingdom that's coming. That what we do now, eternal priorities, take priority because there's a kingdom coming. May we live in joyful hope, praying for that day. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ultimate gift, your son Jesus. And we thank you that every promise you've made is completed and kept in him. Would you root our hearts in the the reality and the celebration and the gratitude of Christmas? That your son came became one of us, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved and rose so that we can rise to have peace with you again. But grow in us too like an expectation, an anticipation that causes hope to spill out of our hearts longing for you and trusting and believing in your promises that Jesus will come again. May we long for that ultimate unimaginable peace and worship rooted in that hope. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said, amen.